You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 584 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. And in this episode, which will be the last for this coming weekend, I'm going to be taking a few days off to take my third son, Solomon Emmanuel Mullet on our father-son 13th birthday rite of passage trip. We're going to go to the Grand Canyon. It's going to be great. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Africa a little bit, actually. (laughs) There's some interesting news out of Africa and concerning Africa that is worth paying some attention to. Also, some national monuments having been declared by President Biden In particular, in the state of Nevada, 500,000, half a million acres being declared national monuments. Whether that's a good thing, whether that's not such a good thing. The average down payment on houses, we'll talk about that. How prepared for retirement are Americans? Rand Paul taking it to Moderna in some public hearings. Some projects that the U.S. government is funding to track misinformation and speech patterns using AI. Also some good news concerning the Colorado snowpack, all of that and more in this episode. But before we get on to some of those current events type stories, let's camp out here in Exodus for just a little bit longer. So if you'll remember yesterday's episode, We talked about the golden calf incident. And here is the next chapter. You've got God telling Moses, tell the people, I'm not going to go with you because if I am in your midst, I'm going to consume you. I'm going to destroy you as a people because you are a stiff necked people. That is to say, you're a stubborn people. That is to say, you're a disobedient people. That is to say, you are a complaining and grumbling people. And I just can't take it anymore. That's basically the message that God is giving to his people through Moses. And it's interesting. It's funny to me that God has now a couple of times in just the section here in the previous chapter talked about Moses having been the one to bring the people up out of the land of Egypt. And that's a curious thing because is it Moses bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the promised land? Or is it God? Is it Moses or is it God? And the answer is, uh uh-huh, yes. It's both. But is this something of a rhetorical device? Is this something of a way of drawing out a misconception for God to say, this people that you brought out. So it's kind of like 
when a husband and wife have a disciplinary issue with their children, and maybe it's a pattern of behavior that those children take after one or the other parent more in exemplifying, what will you hear sometimes from a mother to the father of her children? Your children. Do you know what your son did today? Do you know what your daughter just said? And maybe that's a little bit of what's going on here. At least that's what I think of when I'm reading this. This people that you brought out of Egypt, Moses, you're going to go with them and I'm not going to be in your midst. I just can't take it anymore. Kind of a thing. That's how I'm reading it. If you read this with just these gentle tones and God is just remiss and he's partways depressive and always calm as a cucumber, I think you're reading it wrong, quite frankly. I don't think that's what the text contains. I think we have to read that into the text based on some assumptions about what our emotional range should be based on what we believe is appropriate. We then project that onto God, but God is upset. He is angry. And he, he's angry and he is going to consume this people in his wrath. God has wrath. It's not just love and pleasantness and soft things and pillows filled with goose feathers and, <laughs> uh, you know, covered in silk and, and soft things and gentle things. It's not all just gentleness and lowliness in the story of God's relationship to his people. There is discipline that is needed when there is sin. There is a rebuke when there is an indiscretion. There is here a threat to abandon this people because they are stubborn, because they are disobedient, because they're already off to a bad start. Worshiping some God that they made out of gold, and Aaron's explanation for his part in that is just rich. I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. No, 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 no. That's not how that works. That is not how this works. When you did the thing, you should confess and you should admit that you were wrong and you are trying to blame shift. You're trying to blame the people and act like your part in this was minimal, all the while neglecting that you should have played a more positive role in insisting, no, we cannot do this thing do not do this evil thing. That should have been your response when they said, up. You should have said, no. <laughs> Just because you told me to, to stand up, to get up and do what you want me to do, now I'm not going to do it. I might have done something that you wanted me to do, but not when you're going to talk to me like that. Absolutely not. That should have been the response from Aaron. That would have been the response from Moses. Or Moses would have said, I'm going to seek God's counsel and direction on this. I'm going to go before the Lord because that's what Moses repeatedly does when he has difficulties with the people of Israel. He goes to God. He meets with God. And it's curious, given what just happened with the golden calf incident, it's curious that this is not just a stubborn people. It's a double-minded people. They are going through something of an identity crisis here between, on the one hand, 430 years of accumulated slavery mentality and now trying to figure out what does it mean to be a free people? What does that look like? And what are they going to use their freedom for? Are they going to use their freedom to serve God in the wilderness as God has commanded them, to trust him, 
to provide for them and to protect them? Or are they going to use their freedom to sin? Are they going to use their freedom in a way that actually makes them slaves again, even worse than they were before? Is it worse to be a slave and to know that you're a slave? Or is it worse to think that you are free and to make yourself a slave again? That is something of the question here that they are maybe not even self-consciously grappling with, but clearly struggling with. But then you've got this tent of meeting business. And this is part of the double-mindedness is that the people of Israel see Moses going to meet with God. And when the cloud descends on the tent of meeting and they know that God is there meeting with Moses, they worship. They worship. That's a very curious thing. Isn't it? It's a very curious thing. And I think it speaks to a kind of double-mindedness where they're not really sure where they're landing here. But the stubbornness is that they're not committing themselves fully to the worship of God. They want to worship God and also carry forward the things that are familiar from their time in Egypt, from perhaps 21 generations, depending on how long you think a generation is, 21 generations of hard bondage in Egypt. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And they can't. That's not permitted. That is not acceptable to God. He wants them to be a holy people set apart for his namesake. That is to say, for his glory. That is to say, for his reputation. He wants the nations to see that this is his people and he is their God. And their relationship will, one way or another, communicate God's character and We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. The easy way would be you obey and you trust the Lord your God. The hard way is you continue to be a stiff-necked people, and you're going to get correction, and you're going to get discipline. There are going to be negative consequences. If there's obedience, there are going to be positive consequences. There's going to be blessings. There's going to be reward. There's going to be good things and a life well-lived in abundance, in security, But it's going to be confusing for you because this is not like anything you've ever known before. That's part of why you should want it. It's also part of why you're not sure if you want it because it's like nothing you're familiar with. It is not like the 400 years of hard bondage in Egypt. It is not like how the Egyptians worshiped their gods. That's not how God wants to be worshiped. And he makes that expressly clear again and again and again and again as he must, as he must, in keeping with his character. He can do no other. But then you've got Moses interceding. And this is so curious because depending on how you believe God responds to prayers and what you believe is embedded in the idea of prayer in the first place, you might read this intercession by Moses in very different ways. It appears as though God has his mind made up to just abandon this people and go elsewhere looking for a people to make his own. He's already threatened in the previous chapter to just make Moses into a great people. He's going to destroy Israel. He's going to make Moses into a great people and a great nation. And Moses intercedes there as well. He intercedes here. And his question is, (laughs) how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are a distinct people? I and your people, we are a distinct 
people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the response seems as though that is actually what God was intending all along. That's how I read it is God is drawing this realization out like water from a well. He's drawing this realization in Moses out that this is what he intends and this is how he will move forward with his people. And yet there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the way of obedience training, in the way of teaching this people to trust God, to obey God. These two are two sides of the same coin. To trust and to obey are distinct, and yet you can't have the one without the other. If you don't have trust, then you won't have obedience. If you don't have obedience, then it's a good sign that you don't have trust either. There is no trust in that relationship. And they should trust God. He has proven himself again and again and again. And that they're not trusting him at this point is just stubbornness. It's just being stiff-necked. That they're double-minded instead of being fully committed to trusting in him is stubbornness. It is stiff-neckedness. And it's not so good. So let this be a warning to us. We should not be double-minded because it makes us unstable in all our ways. You can't chase two rabbits because both will get away an old Indian proverb, supposedly, that was on a poster I bought from Walmart years and years ago. I don't know where that poster went to, but it had a bald eagle on it. And I, it hung on the wall for years and years in my late teenage years, my early 20s. Probably got lost in the move from uh, Ohio to Montana back in 2012. But the big idea is you need to make up your mind. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to obey? That's the big question here. And they are being stubborn in refusing to make up their mind in favor of trusting God to this point. And yet Moses has found favor in God's sight. And God says, I know you by name. I know your name. I know you. I recognize you. And what a sobering and encouraging thing that would be to hear from God himself. We should know it if we are in Christ, that he does know us by name. We should know it, but to hear it in this context, in this setting, where Moses is probably wondering, what in the world is going to happen if you just leave me to figure things out with this people? They are going to kill me. What is going to happen to my relationship with you, Lord, if you abandon this people because they have been disobedient What's going to happen to me? Are you going to abandon me as well? Have I found favor in your sight? Lord, will you listen to me? Will you please do this thing? Will you be patient with this people? It's a very interesting back and forth. It's a very interesting exchange here. But more on that probably early next week. Hopefully hopefully early next week. We'll get back into Exodus and continue on from here. Turning to some current events items In the meantime, Uganda bans LGBT identity. Wokies freak out. NTB staff, that is not to be, published this piece just yesterday at notthebe.com. Uganda just made it illegal for anyone to even identify with the LGBT religion. Watch as lawmakers sing and cheer at the passing of the bill. I'm going to play this. Cut one of said cheering and applause and singing. Take a listen. 
country will stand firm. And once she passed, I can tell you, Madam Speaker, we are going to reinforce the law enforcement officers to make sure that homosexuals have no space in Uganda. Reporting from the BBC, and I quote, Uganda's parliament has passed a new law which criminalizes identifying as LGBT and threatens them with 10 years in jail. Them, them that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Musa Ekweru, MP for Amuria District, addressed lawmakers saying homosexuals will have no space in Uganda. It is the latest sign of rising homophobia in a country where homosexual acts are already illegal. Activists and LGBT people in Uganda have said that anti-homosexuality sentiment in the country is exposing them to physical and online violence and that the bill may have far-reaching consequences for Ugandans in general. End quote. Now, let me refer you back to that clip that I played in a recent episode of a Yale professor speaking to the UN Security Council on this matter of Russophobia. Russia called a meeting of the UN Security Council to discuss Russophobia around the world and to complain, to whine and complain about how it's not fair that Russians are being regarded as uh, <clears throat> somehow untoward around the world. Russians everywhere are being discriminated against because they're Russians, because of the war in Ukraine, because of the aggression by Vladimir Putin against the Ukrainian people. And the Yale professor in that bit of testimony to the UN Security Council pointed out that this term, Russophobia, is manipulative. It is further abuse by the Russians. It is further abuse by Vladimir Putin and his regime in Russia against those who are criticizing and condemning the misbehavior, the evil actions of Russia in Ukraine. That's the way he frames it anyways. That's the way he is describing all of this and laying it out. Russophobia is a way of sidelining and stigmatizing those who are critical of Russia by claiming that they have a mental illness. You don't even have to engage with the substance of their critiques. You don't have to even address their complaints if you just say that they're mentally ill and they're just imagining that there's this problem with what Russia is doing or that there should be negative consequences around the world. All right, let's take that idea. Let's take that way of framing this use of phobia language and now let's transpose all of those conclusions onto the situation in Uganda and the way that the BBC is covering this story. The exact same thing is being done with regards to countries and individuals around the world who say we are opposed to the LGBT agenda, the LGBTQ plus, plus here as a stand-in for pedophilia, bestiality, necrophilia, dendrophilia, anything that they come up with next. Plus, plus just means anything we want to do sexually. With regards to sexuality and gender, we are going to say it is our right to do. And if you try to tell us to stop it because there's such a thing as sexual morality, 
we will call you phobic. We will sideline you and claim that you have a mental illness or that you are evil. The exact same thing is coming through in this BBC reporting regarding Uganda. Is Uganda a perfect country? It doesn't matter. It's not the point. It doesn't matter. Does Uganda have a history? Yes, they do. But that is a separate issue to whether this particular move is right and proper. Now, it's interesting that they are criminalizing even to do, even just to identify as LGBTQ and to say, we are not going to tolerate this. We are not going to tolerate it. No, no space in Uganda. Is it a good thing for them to do so? Is it phobic? Well, the question maybe should be shifted to, would it be right for them to affirm something or a range of some things which God has said are an abomination to him? That's the real question. Is it phobia as in an irrational fear of sexual immorality that is driving this legislative action in Uganda? Or is it an appropriate fear of the Lord? That really is the heart of this question. To subvert that debate, to stigmatize and potentially criminalize in the eyes of the world, the Ugandan government and the Ugandan people, it's the same thing that the Russians are doing in the UN Security Council. Change my mind. If not, explain to me how. (laughs) Secretary of State for the United States government, Anthony Blinken, tweeted out, quote, the Anti-Homosexuality Act passed by the Ugandan parliament yesterday would undermine fundamental human rights of all Ugandans and could reverse gains in the fight against HIV AIDS. We urge the Ugandan government to strongly reconsider the implementation of this legislation. Now, let me ask you this. Okay, if there's no connection between homosexuality and HIV AIDS, then how would banning homosexuality and even just identifying as a homosexual, how would that have any relation to HIV AIDS? Riddle me that. Is this to admit that HIV AIDS is primarily a disease that afflicts people who engage in homosexual acts, men who engage in homosexual acts? Is this not primarily an admission that there's a connection between sexual immorality and HIV AIDS. Furthermore, would it be appropriate for us to have an aversion to the practical consequences, the health effects, more to the point, of sexual immorality? Is it phobic to say one of the reasons we should not engage in sexual immorality is because you'll get sick and die? right? You'll get sick and die. There are negative consequences. God said to not do it. If we do it anyways, there are going to be negative consequences. Some of those are natural consequences just because we're breaking God's good created design. And so it's not going to work properly, right? You're breaking your immune system. You're breaking your body's ability to fend off disease. You're introducing pathogens into your body that are going to make you sick, and miserable, and they're going to hurt you, and then they're going to hurt the other people that you are being immoral with. Is that phobic, or is that an absolutely reasonable concern, and one among several reasons that you shouldn't engage in sexual immorality of any kind? Uh, I would say my answer is obvious. My answer to that question is obvious. Katie G. Nelson, journalist, MPH, 
tweeted out, I reported on Uganda's push to criminalize homosexuality for 10 years. Uganda's anti-gay legislation passed today is rooted in British colonial law and bolstered by American evangelicals working to restrict gay rights across Africa. And to that, I would say, so what? So what? And? (laughs) And? Not the bees reporting here. Step one, step two, step three, unpacking what's actually going on here. Don't let the folks who control the narrative hold you back from understanding the timeline here. Step one, Marxists create sexual revolution. Step two, Marxists push said revolution on other nations. Step three, Marxists blame Europeans and Christians when their own colonialist incursions fail. I can't wait to hear how Africans protecting the lives of preborn babies is also the nefarious imperialist work of those colonialist Jesus worshipers. And that's fine. That's fair. That's good. That's correct. This is what you get when Christians are engaged in government, I think. You do get, you do get laws that reflect the law of God which is to say you will criminalize homosexuality and bisexuality and transgenderism and bestiality. You will criminalize sexual immorality on the terms that God puts forward in his word. You will. You will. Because it's not a victimless immorality. It creates victims. It erodes the basis for civilization when there are no morals with regards to sexuality. Now, does that mean I'm in favor of everything being put into the legal code that pertains to sexual morality and sexual immorality? No. But as a Christian, I am in favor of criminalizing sexual immorality where God's word gives us the basis for doing so and tells us this is right and this is wrong. I am very okay with criminalizing homosexual activity and activism, both. Just like I'm okay with if you were to say, oh, but what what other kinds of morality would you criminalize activism with regards to? And I would say, how about murder, for instance? I think not just abortion should be illegal. I think activism with regards to abortion should be illegal. Just like if somebody is carrying out terrorist acts, They're blowing up, oh, I don't know, uh, office buildings, right? That is a criminal act. Even just to plot to blow up an office building full of innocent people to advance your political agenda would be a criminal act. If doing the thing is a criminal act, then us catching you in the process of trying to gear up to do it is a criminal act. So also, if you are trying to recruit people to help you in doing this criminal thing, blowing up an office building. That also would be a criminal act. If you're trying to normalize blowing up office buildings full of innocent people, you're trying to do that publicly, you're trying to get the laws changed to where you can do that without being arrested and thrown in prison or worse, then that should be a criminal act. Now, let's take it out of the realm of violence and let's put it into the realm of sexual ethics. And prove to me, you prove to me, how these things are so different that we should handle the one in the way that we do, and the other one we shouldn't treat at all. 
Prove that to me. From scriptures, from history, from anecdotal evidence, from reasoned arguments. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. But I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Another bit of cheerful news, actually, because I do cheer Uganda for doing this thing. Righteousness exalts any nation. Wickedness is a reproach to any people. And so good for Uganda here. Hopefully they don't stop with this. Hopefully they're more holistic than just with regards to sexual immorality. But this is a good place to start. It's as good a place as any to start. Here is another piece of reporting from Not To Be. Can you tell that I like Not To Be and The Daily Wire? I love me some Not To Be and The Daily Wire. Joel Abbott over at NotToBe.com published a piece just yesterday. This African White House correspondent has gained 60,000 followers in one day because the lefties are big mad at him. This is a story about a gentleman named Simon Atiba. And I'm going to play a couple of clips. I'll try and put a little bit of a sound effect in between them so that you understand where one ends and the other begins. But I'm going to play a couple of clips here from the post about actual journalism at White House Correspondents. Thank you to Joel Abbott and to Not to Be for bringing this to the attention of people like myself who still cannot access Twitter. We are uh, just a few days away, actually. We'll, we'll be on the way back from the Grand Canyon, I think, when it marks one year since my 12-hour suspension from Twitter for tweeting at Chris Jolly Hale. With all due respect... What a retarded thing to say. <laughs> That's what I said. That's what I tweeted to him. And it was such a problem that one year later, I am still banned from Twitter. So thank you to not to be. Thank you to Joel Abbott for embedding these tweets in the post. Here is Supercut 1, I suppose cut 2, 3, 4, 5, whatever it is. Take a listen. Yeah, right. You're right. You're here for me. Right for me. No, 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 no. No, that's not. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. From across the room, you've been discriminating against me and discriminating against some people in the briefing room. And I'm saying that this is the U.S. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is not Russia. Okay. What you are doing, you are making a mockery of the first amendment. It's been seven months. You've not called on me. You've not got my messages. I'm saying that that's not right. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome to the press briefing room. Okay. Are we ready? Are we going to behave? While many folks... Decorum, please. Sorry to our guests. We apologize. Yes, I apologize. I apologize. I will not call on you if you yell... Because there is a press briefing, you need to call from people across the room. She has a valid question. She's asking about the origin of COVID. I hear the question. Dr. Fauci is the best person I, to answer. I hear your question, but we're not doing this the way you want it. This is the disrespect of... It is. I'm done. Simon, I'm done. I'm Simon, I'm done. I'm done with you right now. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're taking time away from Dr. Fauci has to leave in a couple of minutes. I I'm done. I'm not going. I'm not getting into a back and forth with you. Go ahead, Jeremy. Dr. Fauci, um, but, but she's only, only, she's only 30 good questions. Not being you ask your question, you should allow her to answer. Yes, Jeremy. She Jeremy. It is not. It is not your turn. It is not your turn. My job is simple. I need to ask questions that the American people really care about. I'm not there to be friend, and she doesn't have to like me. That's why I said yesterday on Tucker Carlson's show, she doesn't have to like me. She doesn't have to be my friend. My job is simple. And, you know, when you do your job in that briefing room and you ask the tough questions and you don't send your questions in advance, you don't send topics in advance, what they do is they sideline you. They try to, um, you know, um, not call on you. You said that they give questions to Jen, uh, to Jen Psaki or Karine Jean-Pierre. They, they pre-approve their questions. Does that happen? Yes. So the, the White House actually reaches out to journalists and they ask them to send topics. And they justify it by saying that if you send topics, we have a more comprehensive answer for you. People end up sending topics and questions. But if you want to ask about the laptop, Hunter Biden, China, Biden, the connection, the financial connection, you can send it in advance. And so she won't call on you. What they do is they now send softball questions. I've spoken with one, at least one journalist in the room who told me that they can't send the real questions because they won't call on them. And, and it, it's, so the whole press briefing is rigged, right? You have 49 seats in the briefing room. You have people in the first and second rows who get all the questions. And you, you know, a lot of them send topics or questions in advance. And she comes and she reads from the binder. If you're in the briefing room and she doesn't have your questions, she sees you as a danger. Or if you ask questions that the people, the American people really care about, she won't call on you. She will silence you. She will sideline you. She may even discriminate against you, which is what is happening to me. I'm just trying to do my job. I'm saying, let's do our job. Let's ask the questions the people care about. Let's build trust. Let's build connection. Let's build relationships with people. Let's not become friends of the government going to the White House correspondent dinner, not to connect with other journalists, but to just, you know, the ban me, I won't be able to attend the White House Correspondents Association dinner uh, next month. But I don't really care. I'm just doing my job. And they're trying to silence me because I speak for the people. I do my job. I don't send my questions or topics in advance. And, and the American people stand with me. And yes, indeed. These are some very good things to say. Simon Atiba, very good things to say, very true things with regards to the nature of the relationship as it should be between journalists and the government. What is advertised is that we have a media who are there to provide accountability, to investigate, to report. If we are to be an informed electorate here in the United States, then 
we need to get the information from more than just the official White House spokesperson. If the White House spokesperson is screening questions and deciding to just not call on certain journalists and to even shout them down and emasculate them or attempt to either emasculate or infantilize them when they try to ask their question anyways, being there for seven months and not being called on once, then being shouted down and shushed like a child when they try to speak up anyways, uh, that's a major problem. That's a major problem. That speaks to a complete lack of transparency. That speaks to a certain arrogance. That speaks to a certain stiff-neckedness on the part of this administration, on the part of Democrats, on the part of our mainstream media. You know, he's right, too, about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. A verse that comes to mind as he was explaining how he doesn't really care if he doesn't get invited. If he's not going to get an invite to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, okay, whatever. That's not my job. My job is not to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Proverbs 23, starting in verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Stopping there in verse 18, key in on when you sit down to eat with a ruler, what you should do, according to Proverbs. Well, restrain yourself. Be careful, because you have not been invited to dine with the ruler, except because he wants to get some information from you, or he wants you to do a favor for him, or he wants you to not do something that you had in mind to do. That is what Simon Atiba, Cameroonian-born journalist, has apparently picked up on with regards to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And the other people who attend that dinner, maybe they're not in the wrong to attend that dinner, but why are they there? And are they compromising? Are they being bribed after a fashion? Are they being foolish and being pawns in a fashion? I would say quite probably. If they're not, it's the exception rather than the rule, given what we're seeing from most of the journalists who attend. What kind of a journal are they writing and who paid them? What was the cost? What was the fee 
for them to be silent on certain things and to ask other things that would be useful in constructing a narrative, in creating the perception that this is the truth. This is what's going on. This is what is good. This is what is true. Trust us. Obey us. Do what we tell you to do. Don't do what we tell you not to do. Don't hold us accountable when we are misbehaving, when we are doing what is not good to do. It's a big deal. For instance, Ashley Biden's diary, you may have heard of this. You may may not have heard of this. Another example of how this administration relates to journalists who actually do their job. Remember back in 2021, there was a pre-dawn FBI raid on the home of James O'Keefe, Project Veritas founder, related to his acquisition of Ashley Biden's diary. Ashley Biden confirmed over the phone that the scandalous diary is, in fact, hers, according to a post by Jesse James over at Not The Bee from yesterday. Some of the court filings actually admit this, that it is, in fact, her diary. It was, in fact, her diary, very similar to Hunter Biden's laptop when the lawsuit against the laptop repairman alleges that he invaded Hunter Biden's privacy. And then a little while later, his lawyers come out and say, now we're not admitting that it's Hunter Biden's laptop. We're suing because this is an invasion of Hunter Biden's privacy and this is his property, but we're not saying that it's his property. It is his property, but it's not his property, depending on whether that accomplishes our goals, our intentions. In the case of the Ashley Biden journal diary, the highly disturbing accounts that she wrote in that journal, which according to court filings was her journal, included talking about taking showers with her father, Joe Biden, when she was young on a regular basis, probably not appropriate. Yeah. You think, you think she talks about being hypersexualized when she was very young. And shouldn't we know, shouldn't we know if Joe Biden molested his own daughter? Shouldn't we know that? Wouldn't good journalism make that known to the American people? Wouldn't good journalism and an honest, either mainstream journalistic media or social media apparatchik be free to tell us about that, communicate that, make it known to us as the electorate who needs to be informed so that we vote for the right people and don't vote for the wrong people? Wouldn't that be important for us to know if, in fact, the truth was a value on the left? Uh, The answer is yes. The answer is very clearly yes, but the truth is not a value to them. And we know that. We know that consistently across the board on issue after issue after issue. In the case of their personal details, why would we be surprised to find out that they were involved in major crimes, not just violent in nature, but sexual in nature? Is this part of the reason why they are allies to the LGBTQ plus movement? Because these public officials, in many cases, are predators behind the scenes. It fits. It fits like a glove, like a bloody glove, in fact. And this is not no big deal to the Christian as though we just put our 
minds on heavenly things. This is the kind of fasting that God chooses, according to Isaiah 58, that we would break every yoke, that we would loosen the bonds for those who are oppressed. Proverbs 31, Lemuel's mother, when he is young, teaches him, commits him to memorizing that he should open his mouth on the part of those who are being oppressed, those who are having their rights trampled on, those who are poor and destitute and mute, and they can't speak up for themselves. So this is not no big deal. It's not just whatever. And Christians don't need to get into all that. No, this is very, very important. Also important for very similar reasons, because again, this is of a piece. This is a package deal. It comes from the same place spiritually. Nevada governor rips Biden for federal confiscation of over 500,000 acres. Historic mistake. Tim Pierce over at the Daily Wire reported yesterday, Nevada governor Joe Lombardo blasted President Joe Biden's creation of national monuments in Nevada on Tuesday. Biden used authority granted to the president under the Antiquities Act of 1906 on Tuesday to create two national monuments, one in Nevada and one in Texas, and he directed resources towards studying a possible Marine National Monument southwest of Hawaii. The two national monuments together impose strict regulations on roughly 510,000 acres of land. The national monument declared in Nevada is by far the bigger of the two, itself covering over half a million acres. The Avi Kwa Ame National Monument was designated over a region known as Spirit Mountain in southern Nevada. Lombardo said that the designation made without his input locks up land long planned for mineral development and other projects. Quote, since I took office, the Biden White House has not consulted with my administration about any of the details of the proposed Aviqua Ame National Monument, which, given the size of the proposal, seems badly out of step. End quote. Quote, upon learning that the president was considering unilateral action, I reached out to the White House to raise several concerns, citing the potential for terminal disruption of rare earth mineral mining projects and long-planned bipartisan economic development efforts. While I'm still waiting for a response, I'm not surprised. And here's what it is. Just like there is concern about Biden molesting his daughter, using his drug addict son as the bag man to go around the world collecting bribes from foreign tyrants in exchange for information and favorable decisions that would please them, just like the Cameroonian-born journalist gets ghosted by the White House press secretary because he wants to ask questions that pertain to actual journalism, which she does not want to answer, and she does not want the American people to know the answers to. So also here, it is not just journalists. It's not just the American people. It's also governors of U.S. states who are being stonewalled, who are being ignored. You would think 500,000 acres of land in a state would warrant, merit, require at least a consultation with the governor of that state before you just declare, ah, this is a national monument now. Particularly, particularly when you have given Afghanistan to China, essentially, I mean, the Taliban, sure, but Afghanistan is under the sway, under the sphere of China now, with all its rare earth 
mineral wealth, which the Western world will need in order to fight China and Russia in the coming years, you're going to just declare off-limits rare earth minerals, which were planned for extraction in Nevada, and ignore the Republican governor of that state when he would want to talk with you about that. Hey, don't do this thing. There's a bipartisan, longstanding effort, which this will stop, which you know it will stop. What's up with that? Or if it won't stop it, then why not say that? Why not say that? Here was Biden's statement, according to Politico. It's one of our most beautiful landscapes that ties together one of the largest contiguous wildlife corridors in the United States, 500,000 acres. It's breathtaking, rich in biodiversity, sacred lands that are central to the creation story of so many tribes who have been here since time immemorial. It's a place of reverence. It's a place of spirituality, and it's a place of healing. And now it'll be recognized for the significance it holds and be preserved forever. Apparently, too, this designation kills at least one green energy project, the 400-megawatt Angora Solar Project by Avantis, a California-based renewable energy company. The company had requested the Biden administration carve 2,000 acres for the solar farm, which Biden did not accommodate, according to Politico. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is possibly what foreign tyrants get for their money. And if we had good journalists who were allowed to do their jobs and a transparent administration that wasn't blocking them from asking questions and getting answers, we might know the answer to whether it is or not our country being sold out. It seems to me as though odds are high that that's exactly what this is. Ben Zeisloft, also over at the Daily Wire, reports average down payment on houses drops as real estate demand cools. Homebuyers in the United States are paying the lowest down payments in nearly two years amid a decreased demand for properties. The median down payment for a home financed by mortgage was $42,375 as of January 2023, equivalent to 10% of the purchase price according to a Wednesday analysis from Redfin. The figure marks a decline from the 13.6% share of the purchase price recorded in January 2022 and the lockdown era peak of 17.5% in May 2022. And the reason for this is very simple. People don't have the money. The money's not there. How do you save for money when you're paycheck to paycheck just to pay for your utilities costs, your fuel, and your food? How do you save to buy a home? How do you save to buy a home when inflation erases your wage gains and then some? How do you buy a home when you are struggling just to feed yourself and your family? The simple answer is you don't. You don't. Some more reporting from the Daily Wire. American retirement preparedness drops to worrying new level amid economic turmoil. Economic volatility over the past year has severely impacted retirement savings, with more than half of households falling short of the savings trajectory needed to retire at their desired level. The most recent Retirement Savings Assessment Index published by Fidelity Investments showed that the nation's retirement score has declined to 78 as of 2023, marking a decrease of five points from the all-time high of 83 charted in 2020. The typical household now ranks fair rather than good with respect to their preparation for retirement. 
Some 52% of respondents to an assessment from Fidelity Investments may need to, quote, make modest to significant adjustments to their retirement lifestyles unless they, quote, take action to make up for the shortage in their savings, while 34% of respondents require significant adjustments, end quote. Members of the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, are considered the most prepared for retirement. Members of Generation X, those born from 1965 to 1980, as well as millennials, those born between 1981 and 1996, saw declines in preparedness. And I would say this is an extension of the way that the baby boomers related to having those generations in the first place. Gen X is the most aborted generation in American history. The millennial generation was overprotected. And now we see what overprotectionism and abortion look like with regards to the managing of the economy by the same generation that aborted and overprotected by turn those two generations. So Gen X, your retirement may be aborted, just like so many of the babies when you were born were aborted. You made it through, but now your retirement may be aborted. Millennials, your economic future has been overprotected to the point that you are not going to have a better quality of life. Yes, we've had technology that is advanced and that's all great. And is it freeing you? Is it liberating you? Or is it enslaving you? Has it become a shackle around your legs? You've been so protected that maybe you don't retire when you're older. Maybe you can't afford to. Maybe there isn't an economy that supports and sustains you retiring when you're older. You're going to have to live with your adult children if you have them. That's what we're looking at here. And it's not probably going to get better before it gets worse, in my view. Moving on, Chris Enlow at The Blaze published a piece yesterday. Rand Paul confronts Moderna CEO about myocarditis risk from COVID vaccine, then reveals what Moderna's prez secretly told him. I'll go ahead and play this clip, and you can take a listen. Here is cut. We'll call it two, because I played a super cut of the business with the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, and Simon Atiba. Here is cut two. Rand Paul, take a listen. Mr. Benzel, uh, Moderna recently paid NIH $400 million, creates a conflict of interest for the government employees who are making money now off of the vaccine to also be dictating the policy about how many times we have to take the vaccine. Good morning, Senator. Uh, indeed, we recently made, a, before Christmas last year, a $400 million payment to the NIH for uh, an old patent that they had developed, not related to COVID, but useful in the development of a COVID vaccine uh, to, to pay them for their work. Uh, it's for the U.S. government to assess how that money should be Do you think be it creates a conflict of interest for the same people deciding the policy of how often we have to take the vaccine to also be making money the more times we take the vaccine? Yes or no? This is for the government to decide. Senator. You have no opinion on whether or not it creates a conflict of interest? Is there a higher interest or a higher incidence of myocarditis among adolescent males 16 to 24 after taking your vaccine? 
So thank you for the question, Senator. First, let me say we care deeply about safety and we're working closely to, with the CDC and the FDA to Pretty get- Pretty much a yes or no. Is there a higher incidence of myocarditis among boys 16 to 24 after they take your vaccine? The data I've shown actually, I've seen, sorry, from the CDC actually shown that there's less myocarditis for people who get the vaccine versus who get COVID infection. You're, you're saying that for ages 16 to 24 among males who take the COVID vaccine, their risk of myocarditis is less than people who get the disease. That is my understanding. That Senator. is not true. And I'd like to enter into the record six peer-reviewed papers from the Journal of Vaccine, the Annals of Medicine that say the complete opposite of what you say. I also spoke with your president just last week and he readily acknowledged in private that yes, there is an increased risk of myocarditis. The fact that you can't say it in public is quite disturbing. Do you think it's scientifically sound to mandate three vaccines for adolescent boys? This is for the public health leaders to decide, Senator. You've been advocating for it. You've been interviewed and you've been advocating for boosters. Do you know when the myocarditis is most common among these adolescent boys after the second dose? When I spoke with your president, he readily acknowledged in private yeah, that maybe there ought to be a discussion whether we ought to have one vaccine versus two versus three. If 90% of the myocarditis comes after the second dose, why don't we have a rational discussion about one? Marty McCary, a physician from Johns Hopkins, has said exactly the same thing. It's been discussed, and yet we have this ridiculous notion from the CDC. So the CDC says, and I'll ask you this question. Let's start it as a question. Your 16-year-old's had COVID. Your 16-year-old gets better and now has recovered from COVID. You vaccinate them, and they get myocarditis. Are you going to give them two more vaccines? Your child, give them two more vaccines? I'm not a clinician. I will have to discuss. You have children. I do. Have you vaccinated your children? I have. How many times? Three or four times. Three or four times. We so the, the CDC recommends this, and, you know, you're obviously someone who's self-interested in the outcome here. But the CDC says that if your 15, 16-year-old gets COVID, recovers, takes a vaccine, and gets myocarditis, is hospitalized with elevated heart enzymes, and is very sick, the CDC says as soon as he gets better, vaccinate him again. You know how many American parents think that that's a rational, reasonable thing to do? Do you know how many countries don't do this for children? Uh, Sweden doesn't offer the vaccine for kids under 12 unless they're at risk for severe disease. And I agree with that. I'm not saying never on any of this. I think it's a very reasonable position to say kids at risk or have some diseases that there may be a reason for vaccinating some children. Finland doesn't recommend it for under 12 months. Norway also. England as well. France, Poland, Germany, Switzerland, and all vaccinate 12 and up. So we got half the world who have looked at these studies. There's a study in Israel of thousands of patients, and yet you sit here and act as if you've never heard of myocarditis, and you don't think it's an increased risk for young adolescent males, when all of the studies who isolate out people by age have found that, yes, there's an increased risk after taking your vaccine. Pfizer, too, but worse with Moderna. There's an increased risk, Senator. I was comparing it to somebody who gets COVID. Well, that's also not true either. But there's an increased risk of getting it. But even when they compare it to the disease, there are many papers out there who do, that do show that there's more of a risk of myocarditis after vaccination. So you have to weigh the risk and balances. And you are right. You're going to make less money because you're going to try. And they're already trying. The CDC's got it on their schedule. They're going to try to force all the kids in America to do this through school. But guess what? Parents aren't going to do it. They've seen that COVID is not deadly in children, and you're right. It's become less deadly over time. Your market's going down, so you aren't going to make as much money. I'm all for you making money in an honest way, 
But I don't like the idea that the people making the decisions in government are also receiving money and are now conflicted in their interest. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Consider with me, if you will, I'll take a puff of my pipe here. Consider with me how we feel now about the slave trade and bloodletting. Consider with me how many of us feel about the way that children and child labor were exploited in this country once upon a time in factories. Consider with me, if you will, how many of us feel about people being drawn and quartered publicly hundreds of years ago. Public torture and execution. The revulsion that we feel towards those things. And just imagine, if you can, if the world stands, how future generations might look back on this time right now that we're living in today and how they will judge this whole business with the COVID vaccine. This whole business with the White House, press corps, national landmarks, big tech censorship, the COVID lockdowns. How will future generations think of the decisions and statements that are being issued today in these times? You know, if you hear in the background a grinding noise, there's a truck parked across the street with a wood chipper. And that wood chipper is being fed logs from a tree that at one point was a seedling and it grew. And at a certain point, it died or it was just in the way and it needed to be cut down either way because it was going to pose either an impairment to some useful cause or it was dangerous. It might fall on the house. It might fall on children playing underneath it or climbing it. And now the sound that you hear in the background is it being chopped up into tiny little pieces so it can be hauled off and disposed of. So also with bad ideas. So also with corrupt ventures. As Rand Paul says, as the senator from Kentucky says, it's well and good for businesses to make money, but we should be very concerned about the influence of money on the decisions of government officials who may have a conflict of interest when they're receiving millions of dollars and then make favorable decisions on behalf of those who gave them the money. There's a term for this. It's not a new term. It's not a new concept. It's nothing new under the sun, but there's a, there's a term for this, and it's called a bribe. That's what you call it. It's called a bribe. What's the $400 million for to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases? According to the write-up from The Blaze, it's for mRNA technology and intellectual property rights. What in the way of mRNA technology and intellectual property rights costs $400 million. Mm, perhaps a green light. 
perhaps legitimacy, perhaps endorsement, perhaps requirements, advice, perhaps looking the other way on certain things and affirming that this is necessary. It's good. Rand Paul, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, is doing his job. He's asking the kinds of questions. He's making the kinds of statements that a responsible U.S. senator who works for the people in his state should make and should ask. That he seems a bit out of place sometimes now will, I would expect, in the future, work in his favor. Meanwhile, U.S. government funding, according to one report and reporting by Andrew Chapados over at The Blaze, U.S. government funding over 500 projects to track misinformation and speech patterns using artificial intelligence. So that is to say that podcasts like this, blogs like mine, books like mine may be getting assessed by AI for wrong think, for wrong speak in the very near future, if they're not already, if mine is not already. The federal government is amassing a network of artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities through a series of federal grants to researchers and businesses, according to a report at The Federalist. The report states that through more than 500 federally funded contracts or grants since 2020, the government is seeking to take a firm grasp on misinformation and disinformation using AI and ML to tune in to internet chatter. The Federalist reports that the systems will have the ability to identify the origins of what the government deems to be threatening messages or hate speech in real time. Therefore, it would be possible to prevent amplification of the speech before any unapproved messaging goes viral across internet platforms. Some of the companies receiving federal funding include websites like NewsGuard, which receives $750,000 from the Small Business Innovation Research Center to develop its Fingerprints program, which the company describes as tracking disinformation campaigns with human intelligence and AI. Another company, Peak Metrics, has received $1.5 million from the Department of Defense. Peak Metrics tracks over 1.5 million news sources, blogs, social networks, podcasts, TV, radio, and email newsletters, and received money from the Air Force to create technology for rapid assessment and quantification of disinformation for DoD operators. Omelas Inc. receives over $1 million in federal funding for research and development. The company describes its work as analyzing the most influential newspapers, TV channels, government offices, militant groups, and more across a dozen social networks and messaging apps, thousands of websites, and thousands of RSS feeds, including in Russia, Iran, and China. A company called Primer Technologies was awarded $3 million for what is described as social media event monitoring. The company's document, titled the strategic imperative of AI to speed up decision cycles outlines how its AI technology can assess online conversations. It can help identify entities, relationships, and locations of those in the discussion, identify the sentiment in multiple languages, curate relevant images related to the topic, and identify opposing narratives and who is saying them. Quote, primer alerts users to hard-to-find connections such as evolving sentiment across multilingual streaming data and bot-amplified narratives 
an indicator for potential disinformation. Command allows the user to track and categorize threats, surfacing and clustering images and narratives for reporting and further analysis, the document reads. Tracking of online conversations and large sweeping databases of news-related information in conjunction with AI recognition of speech appear to be main focus of the selected government programs, which are often procured by military entities such as the U.S. Air Force or Navy. Translation. It's not just the big corporate media, and it's not just the folks that we find out about, like the Cameroonian-born journalist who hasn't been called on in seven months, even though he's sitting there in the White House press corps. It's also people like you and me who chat back and forth, who text privately, who message over Facebook privately. Hopefully, Signal is immune to that. Although there's always the possibility that it's a honeypot, that it's being used to get people to say what they really think when they think nobody's listening, like a double-sided mirror. Oh, there's nobody behind the double-sided mirror. Well, then why is there a double-sided mirror? (laughs) Right? This is no new thing under the sun, but that is to say that you should be very concerned about what is said publicly by the people who are reading your mail privately and deciding whether they can de-amplify what you have to say online, on the internet. Going back to the Wachowski brothers, The Matrix, there's that scene at the beginning of the movie when Mr. Anderson is arrested, taken in for questioning. And he says, how about I give you the finger and you give me my phone call? I know my rights. You can't bully me with this Gestapo crap. And Agent Smith says, tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a phone call when you are unable to speak? And I say, what good are these technologies when you are only allowed to use them successfully in a lucrative way, in a way that is beneficial and profitable if you are affirming the narratives of the powers that be, of the left? What good are these technologies except to control you, perhaps, possibly, except by God's grace. And this is why you have to be a student of the word. You've got to be reading God's word. You've got to be studying to show yourself, to present yourself as an approved workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's not just special revelation. That's general revelation as well. Don't spread a false report. Don't accept a bribe. We're in Exodus. Just take, for instance, when Jethro Moses' father-in-law tells him, this thing that you are doing is not good. Taking all of the people's complaints on yourself, judging all of the people's complaints, this thing that you are doing is not good. You need to appoint trustworthy, respectable, faithful men to hear the complaints of the people. You need to put some order into this. One of the conditions is choose men who hate a bribe. Not just that they won't accept it, they hate it. They hate bribes. Choose those kinds of men to be judges who won't be swayed in their judgment. Why would that need to be part of the advice and the counsel if there were no such thing as men who like bribes? They love bribes. That's how they get rich. How else are they supposed to support their lavish lifestyle except with bribes? Yeah, the world is full of people like that. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. 
you know, I'll just say it right now. Until I get completely banned, I'm going to keep on podcasting and I'm going to keep on recording this content and putting it out there because I derive a benefit even just when I listen back through it, when my wife and my kids listen back through it, even just when I've taken the time to organize my thoughts and then I'm taking that output of practice, of refining into my everyday conversations. At a certain point, it won't be enough to just censor us online. For the people who want power so much, they'll silence anybody who would hold them accountable. At a certain point, it'll shift into a higher gear, probably with this next generation of radical leftists who've been radicalized in the public schools and online and thanks to pop culture influences. At a certain point, it won't be enough for them to just silence us online. They'll also seek to do so systematically in real life as well. And so we have to know what we're about. We have to know what is true and cling fast, hold fast to it. But in the meantime, I am practicing. And if you're listening to this, if even one other person is listening to this, if even just my family is listening to this, you know what? This is why we homeschool. Somebody's been asking me, oh, I don't know, every six months or so, every year at least, ever since I started blogging and podcasting, but even before that, when I was just posting to Facebook and getting into extended debates with people online about what is good and what is true, trying to help Facebook to be a place where we are going to reason together, people told me again and again, that's not what this is for. This is for seeing pictures of people's children and pets and their new house and their new car. This is a place for wishing each other happy birthday. This isn't a place for serious discussion. But ever since I started engaging online the way that I do now with podcasting and with blogging, I've gotten questions every six months to a year about how do you find time for that? And, you know, We're only having more children, so I've got this big family. And I don't mean to suggest that the people who ask me those questions mean ill by them, by their questions, but they ask the questions and some of them are clearly coming from a place of, you don't really have time for that. You should not be putting as much time into it. And yet I want you to consider that line of questioning. How do you have time for podcasting and blogging and writing alongside some other questions that I get from time to time when people find out that we homeschool. For instance, I get asked, do you help with homeschooling or how, how much of a role do you play? How active are you in the homeschooling of your children? And what are they getting at, right? What they're getting at is in some cases, they're just genuinely curious. What's the ratio? And if they're a homeschooling family, they might be curious. Does Lauren do all of the work? And then you just are working to pay the bills? Do you teach some subjects? You know, it might be just a curious question from a logistics standpoint. But in other cases, the question is driving at a, a kind of hope. I perceive a hope that I'm going to say, yeah, I teach some of the subjects. I teach our kids some of these subjects. Some people I think ask because it's like, oh, you wrote this book and this is why we homeschool, but it's really your wife who's doing all the work. Let's be honest. It's usually the wife who does all the work. And here's what I would say. I podcast in part as a way of homeschooling my children, okay? Part of what I'm doing with podcasting here is homeschooling 
my sons and my daughter. I mean that. I I really do mean that. They are getting an education when they listen to my podcast. I'm talking about art, history, philosophy, theology, politics, science, economics. I'm talking about home ec. I'm talking about my work. I'm talking about communication, how to talk, how to watch the news, how to debate, how to reason. So my children are getting an education in all of those things when they listen to my podcast. And you might say, man, an hour and a half a day. Man, that's such a long time. How do you have time for that? And I say, how long would I be spending if I weren't podcasting, but I were sitting down with my kids to learn math? How long per day would I be spending, do you think? How, how long would be reasonable? And what would you say, <clears throat> right? What would you say? If I told you I spend four to five hours a week teaching my children math, you would say, that's amazing. You are such a good father. If I were spending four to five hours a week teaching my children to write, you would say, oh, wow, I'm so impressed. Man, that's great. That's so great. If I were spending four to five hours a week to teach them history or philosophy or theology, you would say, wow, man, more fathers should be like you. If I spend four to five hours recording podcast episodes, and then I'm talking with my kids in the podcasts and after they've listened and before I go in to record a podcast. And if the end result is in any measure similar to Moses going into the tent of meeting, and I'm not suggesting you should have an overly lofty view of my podcast as though this is me going into the tent of meeting and the cloud of God's glory descending on the tent of meeting when I podcast. But ideally, it would be as close as possible to that when I go into my office and I shut the door and I start recording. If the result is that my children, my wife, my friends, my extended family want to worship God in spirit and in truth, then why is the response one of concern instead of affirmation? And I don't ask for my sake, like I need your approval. I ask for your sake, because what is it in your priorities that would have you say math, history, science, English, philosophy, theology, rhetoric, economics, computer science, (laughs) you know, all of those, all of those are exemplary and great and laudable. If I teach my children those things privately, but if I put them into a podcast that then I'm encouraging my children to listen to, you would say, ooh, don't you think that's time you should be spending with your family? What is wrong with you (laughs) that you would have such a discordant set of responses potentially? Not that you would, you personally, but I'm thinking to those who would ask me those two, two separate distinct kinds of questions and have two very different responses if I said the one, if I said the other. In the one case, they would chide me and they would come away with a lower amount of respect for me. They would lose respect for me and have quote unquote concerns. You know, there were some strengths, weaknesses, and uncertainties written about me here in recent months, which I became aware of. And 
have been thinking about. And one of the items had to do with whether my family knows that I love them, whether they feel loved. And I pair that item with some questions that I've gotten in the last six months to a year about how much time I spend podcasting. And for anybody who would say, don't take it personally, I would say it's intensely personal, actually. It's intensely personal. And don't you dare tell me not to take it personally. Yes, I will take it personally. That hurts. How many men get asked, or it's asked about them behind the scenes? Do you think that their family really knows that they love them? You know, yeah, I know. I, they love them, but does their family know? Does their wife know that? Do their children know? You know, do these men love their wives and their children well in a way that's expressive and affirming and clear and strengthening and encouraging? How many men get asked those kinds of questions about them and for what and why? Right? Why? I will take I will take it personally. I will. Absolutely. Because I'll tell you what, anybody who listens to this podcast would know if if you're doing more than just seeing that I have recorded and published a podcast, if you're actually listening to this podcast, you will know my reasons. If you talk with my wife and my kids and you ask them about my podcast, you will understand something about our relationship and what the big idea is here. What's being pursued? What's being worked towards? I'll admit there's a kind of frustration that has settled in to my soul and I'm trying to dislodge it, but it's holding on stubbornly. There's a discouragement that I am feeling ever since I found out that this was a question that had been posed and it really hadn't been answered satisfactorily. It was still on the list when I got the list as to whether I am loving my wife and my children because that's the suggestion. That is the insinuation. It is not just, do I love my wife and my children? It is, do my wife and my children feel loved? That is to say, am I loving them in a way that they understand that I'm loving them, in a way that they feel loved? And that kind of a question, let's just be very, very clear. Let's unpack this for a moment. This is the subscriber-only episode, so... Only the people who subscribe are going to get to hear it. And if anybody has a problem with my talking about this on the podcast, they can come find me and explain to me the error of my ways. Maybe I'm wrong, but here we go. You don't ask a question like that to imply a good thing. You ask a question like that to introduce doubt in a very negative, unflattering way. And the best you're going to do in answering a question like that, if you're in my position, is to get back to square one, to get back to a neutral position. But as long as that question remains unanswered and it's just hanging out there in the air, a unflattering, to say the least, insinuation has been made. Not to do with my wife and my children. No, no. This kind of a question is not asked so as to suggest that there's something out of place with them. This kind of a question is asked to suggest that there's something out of sorts with me and my priorities. And the same kinds of questions can be asked about a journalist, about a U.S. senator, 
And they are. These kinds of questions are asked. That's part of how I know to recognize the setup when these kinds of questions are asked about me. The kind of question is meant to implant a suggestion. It's the power of the soft sell. Suggest far more than you're actually directly stating. And the unforgivable thing, the thing that gets you outside of good graces moving forward, is when you respond to such soft sell, power of suggestion, with a direct line of questioning. Like the journalist who was born in Cameroon and hasn't been called on for seven months. For instance, no, 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 we're not going to answer that question. Nope, 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 hey, nope, this is not going to go the way that you want it to go. I'm going to make sure of that. Okay. Are you ready to behave? And what it is, is they want to craft the narrative. And so if you interfere with the crafting of the narrative, you become the problem. The problem is not that they are sidelining you. The problem is that you are objecting to being sidelined. You see, good behavior is understood to mean you go along with this, either actively or passively. If we can't get you to actively go along with it, we'll settle for passively. But you will not complain about certain things being suggested. And this is how we find the political situation, the spirit of this age, creeping into our most personal of relationships. Just to be very clear, it wasn't a list, this list of strengths and weaknesses and uncertainties, it wasn't a list produced by my wife or my children. In fact, I went to them and I asked them. After I gained access to this list, I asked my wife and my children, do you feel loved? Do you, do you know that I love you? And they laughed and they said, uh, yeah, why are you asking? It's <laughs> a weird question to ask. I said, well, I'm just wanting to make sure it wasn't even a hesitation. It wasn't like a, well, you know, sometimes I wonder. No, it was yes. And why are you asking? And who's asking that? <sighs> Shifting gears just a little bit, and then we'll come back. We'll circle back because I actually want to conclude this episode on that after a brief reference to another piece of current events here. Colorado mountain snowpack beating 30-year norm as spring nears, except for Arkansas River Basin. Stream and river flows will depend on melting snow. Bruce Finley, writing for the Denver Post. Colorado mountain snowpack measured above normal in early March, a few weeks before the closely watched seasonal peak, except in the Arkansas River Basin, where lagging snow could lead to low water flows. The snowpack tracked by federal snow surveyors, appeared relatively promising with the latest data showing the overall statewide level at 120% of the norm, which is based on a 30-year average between 1991 and 2020. In particular, watersheds that feed the heavily tapped Colorado River held above average snow, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Natural Resources Conservation Service, snow survey data. Quote, we still have a little bit more of winter to go, and then we will have the early spring and early summer precipitation that could still give us a boost. If we do get a good spring, things could get better, Snow Survey Supervisor Brian Damonkos said. Quote, but things could go the other way too, end quote. Now, let's pause for a moment. We've been hearing in national news and in local news here in Colorado about the Colorado River drying up, and it's an emergency, and we're going to have to cut back on agriculture, farming, and ranching, and even per even perhaps 
<clears throat> the use of water for electric generation. And this is going to be a huge crisis throughout the several states in the West who depend on the Colorado River. And this has been a big thing talked about like, hey guys, climate change. Hey guys, give us more of your wealth and your political power and let us do whatever we want because we're going to save you from this crisis, which we just told you about. So that's the setup, right? That's the status quo. That's what's been trumpeted. And that's the drum that's been beat for several years now, at least 20 to 25 years, ever since Al Gore went on his global tour, worldwide tour as a prophet of environmentalism. So now look at this mountain snowpack beating 30 year norm. And even in the title, they have to include a catch and leave you with that, except for Arkansas River Basin. What? <laughs> is the snowpack beating a 30-year norm or isn't it? But things could go the other way too. Uh, but right now they're on a trajectory and what's going to reverse that trajectory? They're beating a 30-year norm. They're at 120% of the norm. That's a significant amount over. Also, remember when I was talking several episodes ago about how La Nina is giving way to El Nino now? And that's going to change rainfall patterns in the U.S., places that have not been getting moisture because of El Nino, La Nina differences will now be getting more moisture. That's the anticipated outcome. Remember that. The folks who've been beating the drum for environmentalism and for leftist takeover of huge swaths of our economy and society, who've been convincing children to just not even expect a future for them unless they become Greta Thunbergs, those people will only very reluctantly admit when the narrative shifts because the weather changed again. Now, let's go back to this question of how do you find time to podcast? Let's go back to this question of whether my family really knows that I love them. If a certain assessment has been made and a certain outcome is desired, it's too easy to use rhetorical devices to suggest certain things without having to actually substantiate. It's too easy. And this happens for all of us. We all do this to some extent or another. You know, think of what we read yesterday with the whole golden calf incident and the double-mindedness, the double-mindedness that we're seeing even in the passage that we read today. When Moses, who is furious with his brother, comes to Aaron and says, what did this people do to you that you have caused them to sin so greatly against the Lord our God? The response from Aaron is, first, to focus on the fact that Moses is angry. Hey, calm down. I mean, he refers to him in a respectful way because he's trying to de-escalate things a little bit. But his explanation for the golden calf is that he just gathered up all the gold, threw it into a fire, and out came this calf, which is nonsense, right? He's minimizing because he knows that he's guilty. So what is the media going to do if all of a sudden everything takes a very sharp turn with regards to climate change in some of these big ways regarding water management in the West, for instance? 
what are they going to do? They're going to minimize the untruth that they were telling before, and they're not going to easily give up. And in that interim where they're trying to de-escalate the, hey, wait a second, weren't you telling us that everything's coming to a fiery end in a dozen years? What was that about? Giving you all our political power and all our wealth, surrendering all our liberties. In the meantime, in this interim, they're going to suggest more than they directly state that, well, you know, we still could be right. We could be right about this uh, other thing that we told you, the catastrophism regarding the climate. We could still be right there. Eh, you know, we'll see. But it's, it's, it's not so. It's not so. And people who knew better all along were saying that's not the case. The same goes for the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab leak theory. The people who said, hey, this could have come from a lab in Wuhan, China, where the virus came from, because literally it's the name of the lab. It's what the lab does is they study coronavirus in Wuhan, China. That's where the coronavirus that you're trying to lock down the world over came from. The people who said, hey, you know what? I've got an education. This is what I do for a living. There are some things that don't add up about this. They were sidelined. They were marginalized. Things were suggested about them that were not even needing to be proved enough to shut them up, to silence them. And are they all being restored? Are they all being made whole now? Or are you just supposed to forget about them? Are you just supposed to move on as the people who damaged us, who did so much damage to individual men, women, and children, whole states and countries and regions of the world, carry on? No, 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 no questions from you. Nope. But we will question your trustworthiness. We will do that. <laughs> We're not going to hear any of your questions, but we will question whether you should have the right to ask any questions. I'm going to play a, another short clip, this one posted to Twitter by Simon Atiba. Here's how The View responded to his kerfuffle with Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. Here's cut three. Take a listen. So welcome back. Yesterday, the cast of Ted Lasso paid a visit to the White House to talk about the serious issue of mental health. But the press conference was interrupted by the notoriously combative reporter from Today News Africa, Simon Atiba. Take a look. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. From across the room. You've been discriminating against me and discriminating against some people in the briefing room. And I'm saying that this is the U.S. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is not Russia. Okay. What you are doing, you are making a mockery of the first amendment. It's been seven months. You've not called on me. You've not called on my messages. I'm saying that that's not right. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome to the press briefing room. Okay. This is not right. So, I mean, this may be one of the reasons, because he does this all the time, this may be one of the reasons she doesn't call on him, because exactly. he can be combative. But is he a troll, or is he, does he have a point about being ignored at the briefings? Now, I know she doesn't decide who sits there, but she does decide who to call on. I don't so think he's a serious question. guy. In 2013, he wrote an open letter on his blog to Nigerian actors saying that a topless scene she was in was offensive because, quote, you are really not 
attractive. <laughs> okay. Unquote. He's not a serious journalist. Well, he also... He ran to Tucker Carlson right after this, so that tells you where he's at. Well, I was going to comment that the sexism ran rampant in that interview, because oh. I watched it back, and he uh -huh. starts to say, she doesn't have to marry me or have babies with me or do it. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? This yeah. is a professional woman, and you are literally filibustering through a press conference where people were coming to speak about mental health. So I don't it, think he's... He said, look, wait, let me read this part. Looking closely at the pictures you released, I realized that your arse was too fat, oh, and your body is in great need of some serious physical exercises. This is who's, who's uh, going to these uh, conferences. I mean, come I mean, on. I, I think he's, he's clearly a, a horrible person and, and maybe shouldn't be in the White House um, a briefing room. However, he does have what's called a hard pass, I yeah. believe, which means he doesn't have a, a seat assigned so when other people don't show up, he gets to ask questions. Oh. Um, he is with... Oh, like uh, at the Emmys and the Oscars. Basically. He's a filler. Filler. So, uh, Standby line. He's a but, seat filler. But in my view, um, and he reports on relations between Africa and the United States. It is a global economy. He hasn't been called on apparently in seven months. If you're going to call on Ducey yeah. from Fox News, which is just infotainment, then you should call on him, on him as well. Yeah, maybe. Well, that only that only works if you're respectful. Even if Ducey is is he started out respectful there and then escalated it, which but I what thought did was he a ask? loss of decorum. What did he ask? There, there's got to be some decorum. He, the, by, this guy tweets at me all the time. He's a big watcher of The View and not a fan of ours. Oh, he is? Yeah. Well, that's but, all right. Oh. I, I've been in this. Our, our Simon Atiba. Hi. Let's say hi to Simon Atiba. <laughs> I, I think you've got to have some decorum, especially because it's an important issue. I've been in this situation before, and actually um, there's usually a Secret Service agent in the back, mm -hmm. and they can like remove someone out the door if they're so disruptive. <laughs> You can make the point and say, you know, I haven't been called on, but then move on. You don't get to filibuster the entire briefing, was kind of my thought. And, Sonia, yeah. I like your point, because in that Tucker Carlson interview, he actually went on to say there have been times where there's been uh, people visiting from Africa, like, uh, you yeah. know, groups of people, and he's still not called and on. And he's still not called on. So I on. do think there might be something here, but I can see <laughs> that. I think you have to look at time. your behavior, sir. You have to look at your behavior, because nobody wants to be jumped. Nobody wants to be jumped up there. The gig is tough enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I and suspect. So she really kind of. Okay, you get the idea. Now you say, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, The View, for pulling out something supposedly, allegedly written by this guy back in 2013, because that is relevant. 10 years ago, you had to look 10 years into his past to find something that he wrote, take a line or two out of context, and then imply that that's the reason why he shouldn't be uh, called on. That's the reason why he's just an objectionable person that shouldn't even be able to ask questions in the White House press briefings. Thank you, The View. Thank, thank you. Thank you for implying untoward things about this guy so that we know who to believe, so that our confidence is restored in the White House press secretary and in the president of the United States and the Democrat Party. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, they give a nod to, yeah, it's a global economy and all that, but this is a kind of colonialism, actually, and it's hypocritical because these are the people who say that they are opposed to racism and they're opposed to looking down on developing countries, in particular Africa, for crying out loud. But then it's a question of hierarchy. You know, where does their sense of purpose and belonging primarily 
find its home over there at The View. Uh, decidedly on the left for progressive causes, for the Democrat Party. So if there's a conflict between sticking up for this Cameroonian-born journalist when he says, you haven't called on me for seven months, sticking up for him and sticking up for the progressive agenda for the Democrat Party, for leftists here in the U.S., for the Biden administration, for Green Jean-Pierre, because intersectionality, well, they are consistently known to side with their political interests here in the U.S., their political ideology, period. And it's a curious thing that there's all this crosstalk. They're all talking all at the same time at one point here. And then when it all dies down, it's like, yeah, there, there really should be more decorum in the White House press corps than this. <laughs> really? You guys are all just talking over each other for like a minute and you're going to claim that this guy was filibustering the entire press conference because he disrupted it for a minute. Um, double standard much? There's, there seems to be a double standard. But see, this is how it goes. This is how, at every level, it works itself out. And so things can be suggested, things can be implied about somebody that destroy their credibility, that destroy their ability to actually do their job, even if they're asking a legitimate question. So what are the questions that he wanted to ask? He wanted to ask about COVID, about the lab leak theory. He wanted to ask about the lockdowns and the vaccines. He wanted to ask about Hunter Biden's laptop, maybe Ashley Biden's journal or diary for all we know. The point is we don't know what he would have asked. We don't know what he wanted to ask because they have to submit their questions in advance and then... Karine Jean-Pierre decides who to call on, who gets permission to ask questions or speak based on what kinds of questions they're going to ask. Right? Of course, right. So all of the conclusions are foregone. The outcomes are predetermined. The narrative is fashioned in advance very skillfully. And you just exclude certain voices or you marginalize certain voices or you delegitimate those who won't quit it. <laughs> The ones who would actually provide accountability and who would say, no, that's not correct. That's not true. And this is why. The very thing that he's being accused of is the very thing that they're doing to him, except he's an actual journalist and they're supposed to look like they're just soccer moms sitting around talking about life. That's the shtick for The View. If anybody buys it, I'm sorry. I am sorry. Or maybe I have a bridge to sell you in New York. You want to buy it? I'll give you a, a great deal. Oh, it's not my bridge to sell? Well, never mind that. Pay me and then you'll find out. You got to pass the bill to find out what's in it. <laughs> this is how this goes. And what it boils down to is being stiff-necked, being stubborn, being double-minded, being two-faced, being disingenuous. What it boils down to is wanting what we want, but then also not really knowing what we want, thinking that we want this and that, but then you can't have both because they're contradictory. So you claim to want both things, but what you really want is to be in control. And anybody who jeopardizes that sense of being in control becomes a threat. And maybe you let certain things get suggested that neutralize 
threats, at least long enough, at least long enough. And if you never follow back up, if you never go back and retract or clarify or you never, oh, I don't know, have the guy on because that's a thing they could do, right? (laughs) That's a thing that the ladies over at The View could do. They could invite this guy on to explain his perspective, his side of the story. One of the clips I played for you in the supercut towards the beginning of this episode was Benny Johnson inviting Simon Atiba on his program to explain. And it's amazing what you find out when you actually let people answer the questions. It's when we don't want to ask the questions and we don't actually want to hear the answers. That's when it gets to be highly corrosive to trust. Trust being upstream of cooperation. You can't erode trust and then act surprised when there is some hesitation on the cooperation piece. There are some misgivings about working closely with you. You can't have it both ways. You can't do both of those things at the same time and then put the onus on the person who's like, well, wait a second. I don't know. You've been really confused and you've sent some mixed signals here. You say this, but you do that. You say you want this, but then you also want this other thing and you can't have them both at the same time. So which is it? But you don't want to decide. And is there a double-mindedness there? How am I supposed to follow you when you're double-minded? How am I supposed to trust you when you're double-minded? Karine Jean-Pierre, President Biden, Moderna CEO, (laughs) hosts of The View, the Denver Post. How am I supposed to believe that you are telling me the truth? Or that I can work with you closely in a way that's going to potentially expose me to still more of what you've demonstrated in the past. At a certain point, we have to say guarding our hearts comes into this and it requires that we not put ourselves in the path of being damaged without good cause. And so somebody will say, well, these are good questions, right? These are good questions. Did he write that in 2013? Or didn't he? And I would say it has nothing to do with whether it's proper for him to not be called on for seven months. Was it Ashley Biden's diary or wasn't it? Was it Hunter Biden's laptop or wasn't it? Those are the kinds of questions that the American people need answers to. Not whether some Cameroonian-born journalist wrote something that you're offended by 10 years ago. And the answer to that question might be, he didn't. But even if he did, it looks petty for you to be bringing that up in this context. For what? What bearing does that have to do what needs to be done here? I mean, just think with me for a moment about what God threatens in Exodus 33. And then we got to wrap up and I got to go. This is the last episode for the weekend, so I'll, I'll leave you with this to think about. But think about what God threatens here what really gets the attention of the people of Israel and leads to Moses interceding on behalf of the people. God threatens to not be among them, to not go with them, because he will consume them in his wrath. And then they act disappointed, like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we want. Do you know what you want? You want God in your midst, but you also don't. You want to worship and serve the Lord your God only, and also other gods. These are mutually exclusive options. There is a law of non-contradiction inherent to 
logic 101 that you are violating right here. And that is because you're double-minded. You need to choose who you will serve. And it's not God's problem that he says, I am angry with you as a stiff-necked, stubborn people. <laughs> it's, not, it's not God's problem. It is not God's fault. We need to understand this about human nature in order to be wise, in order to do what we ought to. To be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, some people are serpents. When we're dealing with double-minded people, stiff-necked people, how to guard our hearts, for from them flow the wellsprings of life. They affect everything that we do, our hearts do. But as I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I will catch you again next week. You can pray for my son Solomon and I as we travel to the Grand Canyon. I'll have stories to tell, I trust, provided we make it there and back safely. I'm looking forward to it. He is too. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.